Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll update you on what members of the Vatican's Commission on Women Deacons have been studying, as well as recent updates in the case of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from sunny Rome, Colleen. Good to hear you again. Our first story is fresh tonight, Tuesday the 15th, and tonight at Fordham University here in New York, two members of the Vatican's Commission to Study Women Deacons are speaking publicly for the first time about the research they've spent the last couple of years conducting. Now, they aren't allowed to speak about the Commission or even confirm reports that they've given their research to the Pope, but they stopped by America Magazine yesterday to tell us a little bit of what they found. Here's Dr. Phyllis Zagano speaking with our national correspondent, Michael O'Loughlin. You know, there's plenty of, uh, of evidence of women uh, deacons. And, and, and I think the most interesting evidence is the fact that the ordination ceremonies for women deacons were identical to the ordination ceremonies for men deacons with changes in gender. You know, she instead of he, <laughs> you know. But, but the ordinations were inside uh, the sanctuary, inside the, inside the altar rail, at the altar, by a bishop um, who invoked the Holy Spirit the epiclesis or the epiclesis, um, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the stole, uh, the giving of the, uh, the chalice to the woman deacon who self-communicated. Um, and, and most of all, they were called deacons. I mean, if they, if they were not deacons, or as language uh, developed deaconesses, they weren't called deacons, then what were they? I mean, there's, there's no reason to call somebody a deacon unless that person is a deacon. And the laying on of So pens. there was a sort of ordination component to... Wasn't a sort of, there was an ordination. And, and Father, you, you shared that opinion that uh, there were clearly women serving as deacons in, in the early church. This is Father Bernard Potier. Yes, of course. It's evident, yes. Not everywhere, not... Uh, not always, etc., because it was also a choice of the bishop. The bishop appointed or not uh, deacons, male deacons or uh, women deacons. Now, the committee that Dr. Zagano and Father Potier were on didn't make recommendations to the Pope. They were more of a research committee. But they said that if the women's diaconate were reinstated, it would be up to bishops' conferences like the USCCB and then down to individual bishops to decide whether they would want female deacons in their dioceses, just like bishops did historically. That being said, it's clear where these committee members stand on the issue. I worked for 20 years in a Portuguese parish in Brussels. In Brussels, like in New York, there are many uh, languages and so on. And there in that parish, I was working for 20 years with a community of sisters, of Portuguese sisters, of course. Mm -hmm. And I could see very clearly that the sisters, there were four or five, depends, uh, they are working very good and very well, and more than I do, because than I did, because I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was an evidence that uh, those women are completely able to, to lead the community. I, I don't say alone, but uh, practically, yes, they had the responsibility. The, the in, in a way that a, a male deacon might lead uh, various aspects of a parish. Um, yes. you, you were seeing the same thing with the sisters at the parish. Yes, a, a male deacon, 
can lead a community and uh, it's his job normally or helping the priest uh, doing that. But I think uh, women deacons could do it uh, very fine and very, very good, like, like a deacon and a community of sisters, not necessarily all of them uh, deaconesses, of course, but one or two could have the responsibility and the ch- be in charge for, for a parish, for example, mm-hmm. that I could experience that uh, during uh, 20 years. So it was for me very important to, to understand better the history and why it was a restoration of the, the deaconate of, uh, of the past and why it could not be uh, the same for, for the women, for example. I, I hope that the church will not be denied what it needs. I, I have often said that, and I truly believe that the church needs more ministry. And if this is a mechanism by which the church can have more ministers, you know, I speak to uh, uh, bishops and cardinals from South America. Uh, One bishop uh, said uh, he had 5 million Catholics and 400 priests. Uh, You know, Father Sosa from uh, the Father General of the Jesuits told me that in Venezuela, there was one parish with two priests and 14 different uh, chapels around. The uh, missionary sisters that I've spoken with, they say uh, it, it would be so much easier in their ministry, since they are up the mountain in the chapels, to be able to do the weddings and do the baptisms because the priest will come once a year. Um, and if they can do the wedding and they can do the baptisms, ordinarily, I mean, there are all sorts of, you can jump through hoops to do these things extraordinarily they don't have to worry about the, the people going to the evangelical place next door. And that, that really is, is what I, I would hope for more ministry for our people. So now we know some of what the committee members have been spending their time researching over the last two years. And you can watch the rest of their interview on America Magazine's YouTube channel because there's a lot more information there. But one thing that puzzled me as a journalist was why the commission members wouldn't talk about the commission or what information they were sharing with the Pope even after the document was already in his hands. Jerry provided some good context for that. It's quite normal that the those who participate in those commissions, they're expected to exercise reserve and not disclose what their recommendations to the Pope are. Otherwise, it's read here as trying to put pressure on the Pope. Oh, I see. So uh, they certainly wouldn't want to do that. They'd certainly want the report to be accepted in the most favorable conditions without prejudging or without putting pressure. That makes sense. It's really important in Vatican politics not to be seen as breaking from tradition or running ahead of the Pope, which is why the commission members are hesitant to be seen as putting pressure on him. But since the Pope has expressed a willingness to explore the question of women deacons in history, these scholars are glad to speak about that. The big question is, since so much depends on the Pope, what will he do now that he has the historical research in his hands? He's had this document for some time, and one thing is reading it and then trying to work out. He he will most likely have to consult other people, and and that's a, a normal practice of the Pope's. That would be like additional scholars? Yes, it could be uh, people with another perspective, uh, with maybe historical knowledge. Because while he's appointed a commission and they come up with their work, 
it doesn't mean that everything to be known is comes into that commission. Got it. Uh, and then there may be other angles that the Pope would want to, to look at. Uh, I, I don't know what they might be, but uh, perhaps looking at how the other Christian churches are have handled this or what the you know what the historical reality was and how it would fit in if he were to in, institute or reinstitute the uh, women deacons how this would fit into the church of the future how would it work out Jerry says it's hard to gauge a timeline for the additional research that is to be done but we will of course keep you up to date here on inside the Vatican And if the topic of women deacons interests you, America has some resources on our website at americamag.org slash women hyphen deacons. We'll link to that page and our full interview with Dr. Zagano and Father Potier in the show notes. This week, we have a number of updates on the case of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Now, if you need a refresher on this case, last summer, the Archdiocese of New York found credible accusations that Cardinal McCarrick, who was a highly respected cardinal on the East Coast, had sexually abused an altar server at St. Patrick's Cathedral in the 1970s. This sparked a number of other people to take accusations against McCarrick to authorities and to the press, including those who said that they were abused as seminarians, as well as those allegedly abused as minors. And as these stories came out, McCarrick became the first cardinal to resign from the College of Cardinals because of sexual abuse accusations. Back in August, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano released a letter accusing Pope Francis and other top Vatican officials, including several Francis appointees, of covering up abuse. The latest news this week is that Archbishop Vigano has released his fourth such letter, this time asking former Cardinal McCarrick to admit and repent of his crimes. Archbishop Vigano called on McCarrick to repent and to ask forgiveness publicly for the wrongs he has done. Now, many people in the church at leadership level, I've heard say, this would really be a good thing if he did that, long before Vigano's letter came out. Right. They, they feel that it would be good for the whole church, and especially in the United States, for him to humbly say, yes, I, I, I did wrong. I, I got it wrong, I did wrong, I asked forgiveness, etc. But there is no sign that uh, McCarrick is doing this. People I've spoken to said there's there's no indication that he, that's the route he's taken so far. This letter, which, like Jerry said, reflects what most people think McCarrick should do, marks a significant change in tone from the more sensational way Vigano's letters have sounded in the past. And that's caused some people to ask if he's trying to regain credibility in the Vatican, since the Vatican's response to his accusations is likely to come out soon. But Jerry thinks that this most recent letter is about something else. I think it's quite significant that I think this is his fourth intervention in six months, since his first one in August, the big one in August, or in July when we were in Ireland. Then there was one in September, then there was another one. He wants to keep his hand, he, he wants to keep stirring the situation in a way. This is how I interpret it. He's trying to kind of keep his story in the news. Absolutely. I, I think that's a very uh, accurate way of, of uh, bringing it about because he knows the Vatican is preparing a response to the, on the McCarrick case. 
Whether Archbishop Vigano aims to keep his story in the news or establish credibility or something else entirely, it seems he's trying to get ahead of the Vatican's response to his claims, which the Vatican has said they've finished investigating. So let's talk about that investigation. Jerry said last week that the Vatican has opted for an expedited process investigating the McCarrick case, and this week he summed up what that looks like. The investigation has been finished. Step one is the investigation. Step two is presenting McCarrick with the charges against him, asking for his response. We know right now that those two parts are done. Step three is bringing the conclusions of that to the congregation in the Vatican. That's the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is a huge Vatican office that handles everything dealing with Catholic teaching and morals. So that includes investigations like this one. Step four is the senior officials of the congregation, the prefect and the two secretaries, reach a judgment on this. Step five, this would be communicated to McCarrick. If he challenges it or appeals against it, step six would be what they call the congregation. I said the board of directors of the congregation, which are about 30 people, I think, cardinals and bishops, will then hear all the evidence, hear the case, hear the judgment, and they will then take a judgment decision. And that decision cannot be appealed against. The Pope will be informed of the decision, and uh, he can confirm it or he can modify it, but that's what will happen. Now, all this is expected to be completed before the meeting in February of the presidents of the bishops' conferences on the abuse question. So there are a number of ways McCarrick can appeal the judgments, but the decision will ultimately come down to the Pope, who has already shown that he doesn't mind taking decisive action in this case. Remember, he accepted McCarrick's resignation from the College of Cardinals immediately, and in the Vatican, that's akin to being fired. It's been reported that if this Vatican investigation finds McCarrick guilty, then he'll be removed from the priesthood. I asked Jerry what that would practically look like, since McCarrick is 88 years old and not in great health. He's currently living in a monastery in Kansas. If he were kicked out, where would he go? Francis has consistently emphasized that the church is committed to justice and mercy. And I cannot see the church throwing him out in the streets. I know that some of the reports, uh, some of the blogs I see, etc., it's as if some people would want him just thrown on the side of the road. The church is a good Samaritan as well. The, the, the point is the, the church is committed to justice, but also to show mercy. And uh, people find this difficult, but this, this is how Christ was. Yeah, that is, it's difficult to hear, you know, thinking, having heard these stories of of his, you know, alleged victims. So we don't know exactly what McCarrick being laicized would look like, but we do know that he's likely to face justice soon. The thing is, that's not where the story ends. There are also other people who are accused of covering up McCarrick's abuse, and the question of what justice they will face is still open. One prominent person who Archbishop Vigano accused of covering up McCarrick's abuse is Cardinal Donald Worrell, who succeeded McCarrick as Archbishop of Washington. This week, it was revealed that Worrell knew about the accusations that McCarrick had abused seminarians and reported those to Vatican officials. It's very clear from the documentation 
that he informed Rome in 2004. That's just less than two years before McCarrick was removed from, they, they accepted his resignation. McCarrick's resignation was accepted in 2006. He could have, not in the normal run of things, he would have expected to stay on for another two or three years as Archbishop of Washington, but they moved him out quickly. So obviously there was a connection between the information that was coming in to Rome and the decision to accept his resignation. So Cardinal Worrell knew something about the abuse of seminarians, and the information he gave the Vatican may even have accelerated the acceptance of McCarrick's resignation as Archbishop of Washington. But the media narrative still says that Worrell covered up McCarrick's abuse. And that may be because Worrell's story seems to have changed. Last year, he denied knowing about McCarrick's abuse. But now that his 2004 report to the Vatican has come out, representatives of the Archdiocese of Washington say that Worrell meant he didn't know about the abuse of minors, not that he didn't know about the abuse of adult seminarians. So while it looks like Worrell reported McCarrick, his puzzling denial isn't the kind of transparency that the church needs when dealing with sexual abuse cases. And that transparency won't come without major changes in how the church deals with abuse. With each day that passes and each story that comes out, the need for transparency grows, as do the expectations for the upcoming summit on sexual abuse in the church. But whether that summit can adequately respond to these needs remains to be seen. Inside the Vatican is produced by me, Colleen Dully. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Kieran Freeman. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Oliver Lazarus. Our studio manager is Leopold Stubner. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media, I'm Colleen Dully with Gerard O'Connell. See you next week.